Thank you so much for your uh, warm welcome. What a delight it is to be with you on this crisp winter morning with the sun shining just perfect. And all of you look really good. Thank you for dressing up to come to the house of the Lord. Thank you for dressing up when you come to the house of the Lord. I'm a little old school, forgive me. Um, You know, I was taught that when you go to see somebody important, you dress up. And then when we go to the church, we go to see the King of Kings and we ought to dress up. Well, we probably overdid it. (laughs) I agree with that. But uh, you look really nice and you look like you came somewhere important today. Did you? I believe so. So I'm just delighted to have you here. I, I get to do this every year or so, and it's always a special treat in my life to see the friends we have here and then new people that are coming in is certainly a joy. The progress and expansion of your church is an exciting thing. Uh, I'm so proud of Pastor Frankie running the Houston Marathon today. What, what a statement about his person that is, and I'm so very proud of him. I think it's a marvelous thing. Um, and um, I'm just really proud of him. Uh, I really love Frankie and Allie so much. They're extraordinary people, and I really believe you're lucky to have them as your pastor. Uh, This whole affair is a reflection of them personally. Uh, Their personal culture is strong and healthy. All of us have personal cultures. And when you're the pastor or you're you're the founder of a a company, uh, your personal culture permeates everything that you build. And uh, I see so much of Frankie's personal culture in this church, a real, uh, real desire for excellence, a real desire for effectiveness, a real desire for uh, balance and truthfulness and, and uh, authenticity. And I, I see all that in him, and I see it in this church, and what a good thing that is. Nothing sloppy about Frankie. Sloppy's not good. Do you like sloppy? I don't like sloppy. Nothing sloppy. Nothing sloppy about Frankie. It's not his personal culture. His car's clean. His clothes are well chosen. Um, you know, he, he's, uh, his house is beautiful. Um, his church is beautiful. He keeps himself fit and strong, eats right, exercises. Nothing sloppy about him. Uh, what you don't see, though, is his prayer life. He and I talk on a regular basis, and Frankie has a strong, consistent, uh, regimented prayer life. And I really admire him for that. Um, He has a very disciplined approach to studying the Bible and delivering you a fresh, relevant word. And I appreciate that. It's all a part of his personal culture. Um, You know, this church is an outgrowth of his personal culture. And, um, you know, they're doing their very best to role model things in life that matter and things that might benefit you. Um, I don't think they would ever say that they are perfect or their marriage is perfect or anything about them is perfect, but you have to admit they got their act together, Uh, and uh, they're being a good role model for you and for others. Thank God for it. They've developed a healthy personal culture that is worthy to learn from and grow from. Um, You know, I wouldn't be a part of a church that if if I didn't admire the pastor's personal culture. I wouldn't do that. I just know I wouldn't. I have to admire the personal culture of my leaders because I know they're going to have a direct impact on me. 
and their personal culture is going to affect who I am and my family. And if I'm going to bring my family to a church, I want to make sure the pastors and leaders have healthy church cultures. Therefore, the church has a healthy culture. Therefore, my family is much more likely to be healthy. And uh, I see all that going on here, and I want to compliment your pastors, let you know how much I love them, what a joy it is to, to work and serve with them. They're just fabulous people. And I say again, you're blessed to have this quality of leadership uh, over your life. And this church is blessed and continue to be so. Would you agree? Uh, effectiveness is very important in a church. The church has to be effective, and uh, I see effective ministry here. You see, growth is the, is the byproduct of effective ministry. Um, if, if, you, if a church collectively is genuinely and positively impacting people's lives, then the church grows. It grows numerically. It grows financially. Um, it grows in terms of facilities. It grows in terms of, of diversity of ministry and targeted specialized ministry. And as I walk with you in this process, uh, I see growth, healthy, strong growth. My pastors say when I was growing up, some things are getting bigger, but it's not growing, it's swelling. <laughs> and well, uh, this church is not swelling, it's growing, and that's healthy. And uh, again, I, I admire that. You know, uh, finances are so important in our lives and a church. Um, you know, I admire the fact that Pastor Frankie's a good money manager. They don't live above their means. They live good. They don't live above their means. They don't spend their money unwisely. They have investments. They have retirement and savings plans. And they live, they live smart. And uh, I look at this church, and you're strong financially. Uh, your bills are paid. Your debt ratio is low. You have investments. You have savings set aside. You have uh, emergency funds at your disposal. And that's a compliment to your leadership. It's a compliment to each of you that are faithful in your tithe and offering and making sure that this church is well taken care of. Uh, you're not broke. You're not about to go broke. Your pastor's not broke. He's not about to grow, grow, grow broke. You're not spending a lot of money needlessly, but you're not tight either. Every time I come here, I see upgrades and expansions and everything's done well. I remember when we, we first uh, stepped into this auditorium, this platform didn't look anything like this. The PA system was inferior. The lighting system was inferior. The projection was inferior. It was all inferior. How many of you remember those days? But now you're working with the finest equipment. Uh, you just purchased another uh, building out here to expand your ministry. You've got a school operating here every day. I mean, those are good signs that good things are happening in this house. Um, and it continues. Who knows what God has for you. But um, thank God you have this beautiful building, great location, and um, marvelous things are ahead. But remember, growth is the byproduct of effective ministry. That's why people come. That's why the thing grows, because it's working. And so you have every reason to be proud of your pastors, proud of your church, and say, thank God that I get to live in this beautiful area called the Woodlands, and I have a wonderful church family, uh, and my life looks good in this regard. And if you're proud of that, say again a great big amen. amen. Okay, you ready to go to the Scripture now? Okay. I'm looking at the clock, and I'm getting set. I want you to open your Bibles with me, and uh, we're going to look at some verses here. Today I want to talk to you about the ethnicity of Christ and the church. 
the ethnicity of Christ and the church. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, and I'll read it for you off the screen. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Everybody say a holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice that word, called out. You were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So today I want to talk to you about the ethnicity of Christ and the church. And I want to go back to verse 9 and show it to you. Now remember your Bible was written in three languages. It was written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, and, and it was written in Aramaic. This is from the Apostle Peter. It would have been written in Greek. And if you'll notice that term, a holy nation, the word nation is the Greek word ethnos. And it is exactly the word we get ethnicity from. And so Peter was teaching us that we are a chosen generation, we are a royal priesthood, and we are a holy ethnicity. He goes on to say, we were not a people, but now we are a people. We were part of other ethnicities, but now there is a new ethnicity that God has inducted us into, an ethnicity that did not exist an ethnicity that was not on the planet until Jesus came and he introduced a brand new ethnicity. And this ethnicity would be an extraction of every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue, all to become under the family of God and be a part of a new ethnicity, the ethnicity of Christ and the church. Now primarily, each of us derive our ethnicities from our parents. My father was of European descent. My ancestry came here in the 1600s from Scotland, and therefore that ethnicity has been passed down for hundreds of years. So I derive my ethnicity from my father. If you're here today and you are of Latin descent, then uh, that's because of your parentage. If you are Asian or, or African descent, that's because of your parentage. Jesus came to initiate a new ethnicity that had never existed on the planet, a brand new ethnicity. And he received his ethnicity from his father, just like I received my ethnicity from my father. You see, God the Father overshadowed the Virgin Mary and conceived in her a new ethnicity. His name was Jesus Christ. So in the same way you and I got our ethnicity from our father, he got his ethnicity from his father, and there's never been that ethnicity before Jesus. So the ethnicity of Jesus originated from God the Father, and you and I have the ethnicity of God, because now through faith in Jesus Christ, we have all become the children of God, and it is a new ethnicity. So we have been called out. Everybody say, called out. So whatever your earthly birth ethnicity was, you have been called out of that ethnicity into the new ethnicity of Christ. And my message to you today is that the church needs to begin to relate to one another as a family and begin to relate to one another as this new ethnicity. 
Unfortunately, the body of Christ is all divided up by a number of things, by doctrine, by denomination, and by race. The fact is the Sunday morning worship hour is still the most segregated hour in America because we have a tendency to gather according to race and culture and build churches around earthly race and earthly cultures rather than build it around the ethnicity of Christ. I hope that my voice can challenge you today to make your spiritual ethnicity your primary identity and to relate to people because they're children of God first and foremost and secondarily by whatever their earthly ethnicity may have been. The church needs to come together around Jesus Christ. We have to realize that at some point that it's us against the world. You see, in reality, of the 7 billion people that roam this planet, there's only two groups of people. There's those saved and those unsaved. Now, I don't know who those people might be. I mean, I have a general idea, but it's not up for me to go down the row and say, you're saved, you're not saved, yes, no, yes, no. But you can count on it. God knows his, who his kids are. Just like you know who your kids are like. You never look at your wife and say, honey, is, is that our boy? Uh, you know your kids. Listen, the Bible said God knows who belongs to him. And even though you and I can't go through the seven billion people and draw the line of who is and who is not saved, God knows on this planet who's saved. And there's only two groups. You're either in the family of God or you're not. And there's no in between and no living on the line. You're either in covenant with God or you're not in covenant with God. And someday there's going to be a great big judgment and God is going to lay out who's saved and who isn't saved. And so it's not up to us to decide who's saved and isn't saved, but it is up to realize that is the church against the world. It isn't just the church against false religions like Muslim and Hindu and Scientology and many other things, but it's us against the whole world. And if we don't start to embrace each other as family, embrace each other because of the ethnicity of Christ as we previously have because of our other race and ethnicity, then the church is not going to be the effective force of light and salt that God called us to be. We need again to embrace each other because we're believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I realize the church is quite diverse in many ways. We're diverse in terms of doctrine. We're diverse in terms of church culture. We're diverse in terms of denomination. There's just lots of distinctions. Know this, everything God did, he built diversity into it. He didn't just create a bird. He created a whole assortment of beautiful birds on the earth. And he didn't just create one man, but he created multiple races and ethnicities because he loves diversity. And so when he builds his church, that same diversity is in the church. But we have to look beyond the diversity and see the unity that we have through Jesus Christ. Now let me say to you this. I identify with every man on this planet that calls Jesus Christ his Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're my brothers and sister, and I, I don't have the authority or the time or the mind to try to sort out who is and who isn't. If you tell me you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're my brother and sister in Christ. Now let's take another step. There are issues in the world today, in the church today, that are worth dividing over. 
There are certain issues and stands we take or choose not to take that are worth dividing over. And I cannot work hand in hand, arm in arm with certain people that believe or do not believe certain things. There are issues worth dividing over. It's up to your pastor to decide what those issues are. But there are issues worth dividing over. But by and large, the church has been divided over issues that really don't matter. And when we here in America have the opportunity to really stand for something that does matter, like same-sex marriage, we didn't. Because we have divided over doctrines and issues and cultural church issues that really are insignificant. Compared to same-sex marriage, whether you speak in tongues or not makes no difference at all. You understand? It's like not even in the same category. And so the church has built a culture of dividing over detailed doctrines And when it came time to really stand for something that really did matter, and there's been a number of those issues in my lifetime and yours, instead of standing together on the big issues, we were still divided over the little issues. And one of the things the church is divided over is race. The the church in America, as well as the world, is divided over race. And we are the ones that should be the new race and the new ethnicity. We're still divided over our earthly ethnicities. And we divide over cultural issues, and we divide over uh, doctrinal issues, we divide over social issues, instead of standing together about the things that really matter. I'd like for you to reconsider and make the ethnicity of Christ and His church your first and primary identity, your first commitment, your first loyalty should be to the people of God. And down the road, there are things that you may have to divide over, but love and respect all men. Judge no one. You know, it's, it's one thing to stand against a lifestyle, stand against an issue, stand against something that you feel like is anti-biblical and very destructive. It's another thing to mistreat people. You can disagree with people and still treat them with honor, love, and respect. You can disagree with everything they stand for, but not dishonor them or devalue them. You can treat them with the love of Christ. That's what Jesus did. Every person Jesus saved, ever has saved, or ever will save. He didn't agree with their lifestyle, but he loved them and saved them in, in spite of that. So racial prejudice is a serious problem in this country that we need to address. Let's go to the Word of the Lord. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. I'll read it to you. For you are all sons of God. That's our ethnicity, right? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So how do you get in this new family, this new ethnicity, this new holy nation? Through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Please hold that verse right there. Now, we have three or four universal prejudice and bias that has divided the human race ever since there's been a human race. The first one mentioned here is Jew or Greek, and that's a clear reference to race. The Jews and then the Greek were two races of people. And so... Uh, 
Paul teaches the Galatians that when you came into the body of Christ, you lost your earthly ethnicity, you took on Jesus Christ and became a part of his family, and you're all together one, and there's no race in the body of Christ. You're not Jews or Greeks or Latino, or, and you're not Caucasians, and you're not Africans, and you're, you're not a- Indians and Asians. You're not any of those things. When you come in the body of Christ, you're a part of a new ethnicity. And you leave those ethnicities behind. And you begin to see yourself as a part of God's body. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. There's no place for racial prejudice in the heart of a believer. Regardless of what your earthly identification is, there's no place in the heart of a Christian believer for bias and prejudice and, and, and categorizing and generalizations and, and, and having preconceived ideas about people and dishonoring them and mistrusting them. There's no place in, in our hearts for those things. It's unacceptable. It is sin. It's not right. It's never going to be right. And I know that the church in America, by and large, has been one of the greatest proponents of racial prejudice. Races group together and they worship and they, they build their own subculture in the church. I realize that. But when you go back to our founder, if you study church history, you see a lot of wrong stuff. But if you go back to the words of our founders... Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets being the foundation we're laying on. This is what they said, that when you get in this new church, this new ethnicity, there's no race. You're not Jew nor Greek. Now also in this, these two words is religion because Jew was not just a race. It was a religion, Judaism, and you cannot separate a Jew from Judaism because they are, what, that's who they are. They're, they were uh, God's people originally and initially. And so when Paul writes this, he wasn't just talking about their race. He was talking about their, origin, their religion. The Greeks uh, worshipped various forms of Greek mythology. So from the beginning of time, there have been these three universal prejudices. Countries, nations, people groups have fought wars and, and have divided over these things. Ethnicity or race and also religion. Then there was, there is neither slave nor free. This refers to class. Now thankfully today in most every part of the world, slavery is no longer legalized or socially acceptable. It's illegal. But there's still class, upper class, lower class, high class, low class, middle class, this class, that class, where you identify people and you rate them higher or low based on class. And Paul said that in Christ Jesus, there's no class. And when Paul talked to the Corinthian church about how to have church gatherings like you and I are having here today, he talked about the poor coming in and the rich coming in and how that you cannot treat them differently, usher one to the front and sit one in the back. You cannot recognize and respond to people because they're a different class of people, educated, uneducated, rich and poor, cool and not so cool, young or old, from that part of town or this part of town, work in that career or that career or not work at all. In Christ Jesus, there is no class. Then he moves on. He says there's neither male nor female. This is gender biased. And since the beginning of time, there's been bias, and through Christ, we see an immediate change. 
before Jesus Christ instituted this new ethnicity and brought us all in together and erased the lines between men and women, there was slavery, multiple spouse, multiple wives was totally acceptable. The great patriarch of the Bible had concubines. That's an old-fashioned term for sex slaves, by the way. And uh, that was common. But when Jesus came on the scene, it was one man, one woman, one life. And women began to be elevated and exalted and honored and freed to work. You read the New Testament, you see the beginning of women being released to minister and pray and teach. It was the beginning. And Paul opened the door so that women could be what they are today, free in the body of Christ to teach and pray and prophesy and for God to use them as he chooses. But Jesus instituted. Before then, it didn't happen. In Judaism, it never happened. But when Jesus came with this new ethnicity, he erased the lines of race. He erased the lines of religion. He erased the lines of of gender and class. He erased those lines, and he brought us together into one ethnicity. Jesus directly addressed racial prejudice. I want to show it to you. Luke chapter 10. We're going to read starting in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, meaning the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to him, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded with one of the greatest parables, the greatest stories that have ever been told. We call it the story of the good Samaritan. So in the story, there is a Jewish man who is traveling down the road, and he's attacked by thieves and robbers, beaten and and left bloody on the roadside, stolen of all of his, his worldly goods, and he's left there to die. And so a priest walks by, a Jewish man, a religious leader. He sees him on the roadside. He sees that he's in desperate condition. He sees that he's dying and needs help, but he's busy, and he keeps on walking by, unconcerned. Next, a rabbi comes by. He's a teacher of the law. He knows the law. He knows the Bible. He knows right from wrong. That's his job to teach people what to do and what not to do in their life. But evidently, he had a serious appointment or something and he was headed to, and he walks right on by and he doesn't stop to help the man. Then Jesus said, a Samaritan came by. We don't know anything about this man, educated, uneducated, smart, dumb, rich, poor. We don't know. All we know is when, when the Jews walk by, They just kept going. But when this Samaritan walked by, he stopped, picks up the man, binds up his wound, carries him into town, gets the kind of medical care that he needed, and paid the bill himself. He was a Samaritan. Well, we learn a lot about how to love our neighbor. But if you understand the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, then there's a much bigger, broader, more impacting message Jesus was teaching. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. There was huge racial bias and prejudice between the Samaritans and the Jews. They hated each other. They each grew up from children learning to mistrust, learning to hate, learning to be angry at each other. 
And for hundreds of years, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They had nothing to do with each other. They, they fought. They argued religion. They argued everything. And they hated each other. We're talking about a degree of racial prejudice equal to anything this country's ever seen between the Jew and the Samaritan. And what Jesus was simply saying here was, when people of his own race walked by and left him, a band that had been taught to hate Jews, mistrust Jews, have nothing to do with Jews, stopped and helped him. And at the end of the story, he asked the attorney, now you tell me who was a neighbor to who. The man was a neighbor that was able to overcome cultural bias and prejudice. You see, when you're raised in America, it doesn't matter what your earthly ethnicity is. It doesn't matter. You're raised to mistrust and maybe even hate people of other races. There's automatically built-in prejudice that just your culture puts it in you. When you're an innocent baby, a small boy or girl growing up, there's things that our culture puts into us. Later in your life, as you realize these attitudes are not right and these feelings are unjustified and ungodly, then you have to start repenting and stripping that stuff out of your mind. But you can't be raised in America or any other country in the world without built-in prejudice being put in you as a child. And you and I, as children of God, we have to overcome that and say, you know what, my culture is not going to dictate the quality of my heart or my attitude toward other people, but I'm in a new ethnicity, I have a brand new kingdom culture, and my culture is to love everybody and not look through rose-colored glasses about people groups that I don't even know and may not have done anything to me. So in this journey that I have personally been on, you know, along the way, you realize that there are certain attitudes and feelings toward other people that are ungodly and not right. And you have to cleanse your heart of those things. And then there are times, there are times when you think you're clear of it and then situations evolve and they can jump back up. And that's what's happening in America. We've had some situations that has reignited old feelings of racial prejudice and divisions, and we're confronting those things again. And that, that's the way life is. It's not like you get rid of sin and it's gone forever. Well, it certainly want it to be, but you have to be careful to come right back on you. How many of you know how sin comes right back on you? Think you got rid of it forever, and all of a sudden it's right back there in your face again. Well, that's the way hatred is just another, just another sin. It comes back on you. And um, so situations cause that to happen. I'll tell you a quick story. And I'm going to keep moving here. Can you all go fast with me today? Here's a quick story. My dad died about 20 years ago, and I was responsible for taking care of my mom. So dad's gone. I'm the son. I've got to make sure my mom's taken care of. I want to do a good job, and I'm a little over the top, a little bit, you know, like, you know, on top of everything and real defensive. So anyway, my mom and dad had a, had a home. Uh, that uh, they had rented out a piece of real estate, an investment piece of real estate. So there was a certain group of ethni ethnicity that had rented that house. And so they tore up the house. They didn't pay the rent, ended up stealing a lot of money from my mom and tore up her house. So, you know, my dad just died, and I'm the son, and I'm defended my mom, and I'm like, you can't do this to my mom. And, you know, just overreacting to a lot of stuff as I was getting adjusted to being my, my mother's caretaker in my dad's place. And so, uh, this, so I was walking through the mall one day, and I saw a, a little group of people that shared the same ethnicity, the people that was in my mom's house that stole the money and tore up her house. Ultimately, Maz and Leah, uh, Frankie's daddy, 
uh, would buy that house, live in that house, and Frank and his brothers lived in that house. Jonathan, did you live in that house? Well, he's gone. He was over there a while ago. Anyway, so anyway, I, I was in the mall, and I, I saw, I was in the mall, and I saw a group of people that shared the identity, the ethnicity of the people that stole the money from my mom, and I'm like, huh, I bet that's some more of those people there. <laughs> There's some of those people that stole that money from my mother. You know, and I'm having all these big feelings going on, like, man, go kill them all. <laughs> they, they stole money from my mom. They tore up her house. And I walked away, and I thought, where'd that come from? <laughs> I mean, that is so foreign to me. But the situation that I was in at that time made me look at the whole ethnicity if they were liars, thieves, and robbers of my mom. And so I'm like, oh, God, forgive me. I'm not going there now. I've, I've been through down that road. I don't, that's not me. I'm not doing that. So situations can evolve that create bias and prejudice that previously you'd overcome and, and didn't have. And I want to encourage you to be a model Christian, model to America what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and love like Jesus loved and, and care for people and treat people with honor and respect. Just because I treat a man or a woman with honor and respect doesn't mean I condone everything they do or believe everything they believe. I just honor the fact they're a creation of God. And the Bible said, honor all men, everybody. We have a responsibility to do that. And Jesus directly addressed it in the story of the good Samaritan. Um, you know, America is unfortunately getting further and further away from God. And our culture is drifting in the wrong direction. If the church would stand together, we could turn it around. But we're so divided. You know, we're Republicans and Democrats and, and we're liberals and, and uh, conservatives and we're north and we're south. And we're so split up because our identity groups is not first and foremost the fact that we're Christians, Bible-believing Christians, but we've got all these other identity groups that we have loyalties to and we vote according to our loyalty group instead of the Word of God and the fact that we are Christians and children of God and it's hurting us. One of the reasons why things have happened in my lifetime and yours that have carried this country in the wrong direction is because Christians were divided and they could not produce one vote. Every politician in the world will tell you that if Christians ever decide to stand together. We could elect anybody we wanted to elect. We could stop anything we wanted to stop if we'd just stand together. But the basic principles of God's Word, we haven't lived out. We haven't, we haven't gotten the right attitude, the mindset that we need to be what God called us to be. And so we're all split up and divided. I, I want to be a voice that brings people together, brings a church together. I, I want to be a part of a group of people that, that loves and honors all people, that we take stands for things that are worthy of it, but we still love and respect people, and we pull people together. You know, uh, in uh, Sugarland, that's southwest Houston, Swart Bend County, I was reading just yesterday uh, that we, we are the most diverse uh, racially diverse county in all the United States, not just here. So uh, what happens is the oil industry and the medical industry has brought people from all over the world to the southwest Houston area where we are. And, um, you know, I look at what's happening um, here with Exxon and that huge project, freeways being built, buildings going up. It's amazing uh, what's happening here. This place is exploding right in front of you right now. And I can tell you the petrochemical industry is already bringing people from all over the planet here to Woodlands. And many of them God is sending to be a part of this church.
And your church is very diverse, and you're modeling diversity and oneness in the body of Christ right this minute. But you're going to see people from all over the world are going to be coming to be a part of your church family. And I'm saying this prophetically because I know God wants you to embrace them and love them and connect with them because you're all a part of the same ethnicity of Christ. And God, they may be coming because of a job opportunity, but God says behind that I'm sending them because I want them to be trained and educated and I want to touch their core country of origin through Celebration Church. See, this is a missions. Sometimes we send missionaries across the sea, and sometimes God sends people across the sea to us. And in this case, you're going to see people that are going to be coming in to be taught the Word of God, taught how to live for Christ, and you have to model the best church you can be, the best Christian you can be, so that as people come in, they can receive Christ, and they can grow and become great Christians and be everything God intended for us to be. And I want to challenge you in that way. I want to challenge you. Uh, changes are coming for this church. Size changes, cultural changes, the blend of ethnicity is going to change, and a lot of good things are going to happen, and it's all God. You're not here by accident. Just 10 years or more ago when God sent Frankie and Allie here, God knew what was going to happen in the last decade, and he has strategically positioned you to play a big role in what God is doing in the earth. And this is just one little piece of it that I've shared with you today, but I want you to know it's a very important piece, and I want you to hold it very, very dear. Now, I'm coming to a close this morning, and I want to shift my focus. I've covered a lot of stuff for you today. Your pastor's a phenomenal preacher. If you're a guest here today, I promise you, come back next week. Pastor Frank is a lot better than I am, and you'll have a good time, I promise you. Uh, I, I have an apostolic ministry, and so when I come in, I'm touching several things. You'll notice I've, I've hit several things today, and that, that's why I'm here. You get great Bible teaching week after week, and it's all good, but, but I, I come with an apostolic voice, and I have a little bit different agenda. You come to my church when I'm teaching my people. I'm a pastor, and I have a pastoral message, and that's what I do. But when I come to see you, I'm an, I'm an apostolic gift, and I have a... a, 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 a series of things that I want to impart to you while I'm here. In James chapter 4, verse 8, and I asked him to put that up for me in the New Living Translation. Listen to what it says. This is a promise from God. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. What an invitation. Come close to God. He'll come close to you. The old timers used to say it like this. If you'll take one step toward the Lord, He'll take two toward you. Come close to God. He'll come close to you. Every January, we come close to God. There's three paths to God. Fasting, prayer, studying your Bible. That's the three avenues to God. If you want to come close to God, you've got to fast, you've got to pray, you've got to read your Bible. And that's what this 14-day intensive is all about. It's about coming close to God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you will fast and pray, God will come close to you. Either that or his word's a lie. He said, if you come close to me, I'll come close to you. And when you start praying and spending just 30 minutes a day in private devotion, guarding each other's time, one taking care of the kids while the other pray and then reverse, making sure everybody has their quiet time with God uninterrupted, you're coming close to God. When you push away at the table and say, I'm not eating that for the next few days, I'm giving that to God. 
that that hunger pain is like an alarm system you know on my phone and yours i've got all these alerts like if you say pray for me pastor i'm having surgery on tuesday i put myself an alert and just before you go into surgery my alert my phone goes off and i start praying for you and that's how i remember all that stuff because i can't remember it but it's like an alert right well see when i when i'm hungry for something i'm fasting it's like that telephone giving me an alert and immediately I convert that physical desire, that appetite desire, I convert that and I say, Father, I'm hungry for you. Stomach says, when are you going to eat? I'm not going to eat because, Father, I'm hungry for you. Your word said, if I would draw close to you, you would draw close to me. And that, that's, what it, that's what fasting does. It humbles the flesh and it's like a, a day-long alert. Some of you fasting coffee, and I know when you don't get that coffee, your body tells you about it. Everybody say amen. amen. You, fat, you get sugar in your bloodstream, and then, you know, you start fasting all sugar, and your body's saying, man, I need some sugar. Um, and all of that is just an alert reminding you to come close to God. Come close to God. He'll come close to you. You'll get the strength you need, the help you need, the direction you need, the answer you need to live this life victoriously for Christ. I want to encourage you. If you're new in God, plug in. Get started. Grow in God. This is how you grow in God. If you've been living for God a while and you hadn't gotten plugged in, shame on you. Maybe you've gotten carnal and fleshly and don't realize how carnal you've gotten. You can't even fast and pray every day for two weeks. Maybe you're not what you intended to be. Maybe you've fallen below the standard of spirituality you've previously set for yourself. This church ought to be 100%. Your pastor has wisely given you at different levels to jump in at because many of you have health issues and schedule issues and, and you're different place in your walk with God. So he gave you in, different levels to jump in so that 100% of this church can get involved at some level. I'll just be honest with you. If you're not involved in this fast, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. If you're a member of this church and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're not involved in this fast, you ought to be ashamed of yourself and fix it today. Say, God help me. I love you all. Thanks for giving me this time. I want to open the altar for prayer today. If the prayer partners will come forward, uh, this is an opportunity for you to receive help from God. You may need help in the arena of your physical health your finances, your family, your career. You may be facing the greatest opportunity of a lifetime or maybe the greatest problem of a lifetime. If you'll come to the altar, God will meet you at the point of your need. He will help you. You don't have to even have to be a Christian. You just want God to help you. Come down. He loves you. He cares about what you're going through, and He will help you. You don't have to be a member of this church. You can just say, you know, I'd just like somebody to pray with me about this, that, or the other, whatever it is. Come on down. We're here to pray for you. Let me tell you something. You don't have to tell us details and embarrassing circumstances. Just kind of give us an idea, like pray for my marriage. You don't have to say it's good or bad, falling apart or anything. Just say, pray for my marriage. Just pray for me in my personal walk with God. Pray for me that I'll have the grace to go on this fast and, and to, to devote myself to study every day. Well, why don't you can just... Just say it, and we'll pray for you, and God will touch you because He loves you, and He cares about what is affecting your life. So whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you need from God, you're welcome to come down to any of these people standing. We'll join hands with you, pray with you, and God will come to your aid. Let's stand together, and if you need prayer, 
please come forward right now. You're welcome here in this altar.